0: Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 12, verses 1-12 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of Spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we might share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weakenings
1: lovely to be here and if we haven't met my name is Steve I'm going to be uh, speaking today today I want to talk to you about God's discipline each morning as part of my uh, COVID-19 routine uh, you know trying to get a routine in my life and have uh, getting out for exercise and all the rest like so in the right in the morning around 7 eight thirty, depending on the day I go for a walk around the local park And the other morning, as I was in the park, I saw a mum and she had a pram and there was a baby in the pram and there was a toddler out of the pram. And you know, like often it is when you've got young kids, there's a lot going on and you're trying to keep them organized and the toddler would run off as toddlers do, you know, something shining, something exciting. I don't know, but the toddler just started to walk away from the mum where the mum had the pram. And uh, the mum then had to run after the toddler and the toddler was about to hit a bench. And I don't know if the toddler had seen the bench, but there was a good chance it was going to hit the, uh, hit its head and hurt itself. And so the mum ran over and you saw the mum literally grab the toddler, turn around, and the toddler then started walking the other way. And uh, it's uh, sort of uh, parenting for one-year-olds and two-year-olds if you had them or if you know what I mean. Um, It's not so much discipline, that example, but redirection. But the big idea is the big idea of today's talk. The mum intervened in her child's life because the mum has wisdom, experience, knowledge, and vision her toddler doesn't have so she intervenes and the toddler is learning that the mum is in charge and that mum knows best and that mum is always there and that's what we're looking at today that our father in heaven is a good father in his eternal love and wisdom with his vast knowledge And a great end goal in mind, he intervenes, he brings discipline into our lives because he knows best. And so as we, as a global community, face a scary pandemic that's creating lots of heartache and lots of hardship, this is a timely passage for us to think, what is our Heavenly Father doing right now? How is he disciplining us? So we're gonna look at three things we're going to look at why God disciplines us, how God disciplines us, and how we should respond. Why, how, and how to respond. So let's first of all look at how God disciplines us. Do you remember the context of the book of Hebrews which we're in? The Christians were suffering. They'd been suffering for a long time, and the suffering was getting worse. You know, things weren't getting better. It had been a long period of suffering, a public insult, confiscation of property, put in prison. Some of them may now be dying. You see in verse three, it says you're not resisted to the point of shedding blood, but that may be a reality for them. And so these Christians had had one thing after another. Life was not easy. It was only getting worse. And they were tempted to give up. So the metaphor that runs through the whole of chapter 12 is this idea of persevering in a race. And a race can be hard. And they were thinking, well, I'm just going to give up on the race. Or Maybe they were going to be disqualified from the race because of their behavior and you know and and not honoring God. And the writer says, No, keep persevering. And he says in verse five, Have you forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his children? Now, what is this word of encouragement? There's a word of encouragement the writer has and the Holy Spirit has for us today. As a father speaks to his son, there's a word of encouragement. What's the word of encouragement? My son. From Proverbs chapter three, do not make light the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. The word of encouragement for us today is that God our Father in heaven is using the suffering and the hardships we go with to discipline us, to chasten us. So, verse seven, he says, endure hardship, whatever the hardship, endure hardship. As discipline, God is treating you as his children. So just to be clear, all the hardships, all the sufferings, all the trials, all the setbacks, all the disappointments, all the counseled plans, all the unfulfilled dreams, all the physical pu- physical persecutions, all the hardships, that is God disciplining you because you're his child. And remember, this is a word of encouragement. We're supposed to go, well, I'm so encouraged. God is using suffering to discipline us. So as we think of the terrible hardship the world is going through now, it's still a hardship. It's still called a hardship. The financial instability, the health concerns, the interpersonal frustrations, the job losses, the daily hardships. God is disciplining us. Now, are you encouraged by that message or are you offended by that idea? Why would anyone see that as an encouraging message? Well, you have to understand the motivation of our Heavenly Father. So how God disciplines us, first question, through suffering, through trials, through COVID-19, through all kinds of things that are hard, hardships, any kind of hardship. That's an encouragement? Yeah. Why? Because we understand his motivation. Verse six gives us two motivations. Do you see the screen? Look at the two motivations, verse six. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, first motivation, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son or a daughter, a child. The two motivations why is he doing it? Because he loves us and because he wants to show he accepts us as his children. And the writer goes to great lengths in this passage to say if God wasn't disciplining us, then we wouldn't be certain if we were his children. I'm a father of two children. A sign that I am a father to my two children is that I discipline them. I do not go around disciplining other people's children. I'm a sports coach and I have a few roles where maybe I would speak to another child and discipline in some level. But I do not bring the same level of discipline to any other child in the whole world that I do to my children because they are my children. They're legitimate children to meet this, my responsibility, because I am their father and I love them, that I bring the discipline in a way that I don't to any other child in the whole world. So verse seven and eight says, for what children are not disciplined by their father, and if you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. The fact that I discipline my children shows you they're mine, and they're special, and they're loved and I accept them as my children. The ones I don't discipline, it's not that I don't love them, but not the same way. And I'm not accepting them as my children because they're not. And why do I discipline them? Because I love them. I want their best. I want them to grow and become more rounded and full human beings. I want them to learn right from wrong. I want them to learn delayed gratification you can't just have what you want when you want it no you have to discipline them that children learn that that's not acceptable and if they don't learn that lesson they'll do more damage to themselves later in life if they can always get what they want how they want it they can't they have to learn to consider others I want their best now of course I am not a perfect father so my discipline is not perfect my motives are not always pure My manner is not always careful and my punishments are not always proportionate. And yet, even I, as an imperfect father, bringing imperfect discipline to my children and playing a vital, vital role in their life and their livelihood and their health and their happiness ongoing. So verse 9 and 10 talks about the imperfect earthly fathers and the perfect heavenly father. Moreover, we had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a while as they thought best in our wisdom. But God disciplines us for what we know is our good. It's not what he thinks is best, it's what he knows is good. In order that we may share in his holiness. In other words, if we can learn good things from imperfect fathers who discipline imperfectly, how much more should we submit to the perfect love and discipline of a heavenly father who has the right motives and the right manner and he brings that discipline in the right way? So why does God discipline us? Because he's saying, you're my child, I love you and I have really great plans. I have your good in mind, but it might require discipline. Now, let me pause and say something really important, really important, particularly if you've had a bad earthly father or an absent earthly father or a father or mother who disciplined you really badly and wrongly and in the wrong way. This can just feel like a, a, a very offensive message if that's your only model. So we must look at some wrong answers. Why God isn't disciplining us? What are the wrong answers? He's not disciplining us to punish us for our sins. He's not disciplining us because he has abandoned us. And he's not disciplining us because he dislikes us. Firstly, it's easy when suffering and hardships come into our lives to think, well, this is happening to me, this tragedy, this thing, because of some sin, because I haven't been good enough and and God is paying me back and I deserve it. Brothers and sisters on this Zoom call, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews has spent 10 chapters telling us about a great high priest and a once for all final sacrifice, obtaining a great and eternal salvation. And we now have a throne of grace which we can approach without fear, without uh, condemnation, without guilt and without shame. We can enter right into the presence of God and know this throne is full of grace and he's our heavenly father. We do not relate to God our father on the basis of our performance. We relate to him on the basis of Jesus' performance and that was perfect and Jesus died for our sins. So we are not being disciplined because of some sin. It's important you hear that. Secondly, it's easy when suffering and hardship comes to think that God has abandoned us because that's how it feels. And often we're dictated by our feelings. He doesn't care. But wait a minute. Think about God's other legitimate son, Jesus, his true son, his one and only son. What do we know about Jesus? Just one verse from Hebrews. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, Hebrews 2.10, it was fitting that God for whom and through everything exists, Should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Jesus himself, God's beloved Son, also suffered so he could perfectly represent us. He was equipped, he was made perfect as our pioneer of salvation. But why did Jesus suffer? Do you see what it says? Look at verse 10 there on the screen. In bringing many sons and daughters. To glory he hasn't abandoned you he is bringing you to glory and what happened when jesus died we we know this we've just celebrated easter he shouts out my god my god why have you abandoned me jesus took all our sin and he took the punishment from our sin which was separation from god he was abandoned so we would never be abandoned he was cast out of the family he was disowned by his father in that moment so you and I could be adopted and know that we would never ever lose our adoption. He's not abandoned us. So in the next chapter quoting two famous Old Testament passages the writer says God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you Deuteronomy 31. So we say with confidence says the writer the Lord is my helper I will not be afraid what can mere mortals?" Due to me since Jesus has paid for my sins and has faced this the, 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 he's paid that debt of separation from God I can never now God, God can never exact two payments of that debt so I can never be abandoned even if it feels like that that can't be true so he's not disciplining us to punish us for our sins he's not disciplining us because he's abandoned us excuse my numbering on the screen and thirdly he's not disciplining us because he dislikes us you might know in your head these great gospel truths that Jesus has paid the price that he was abandoned. So you could be accepted, but it's easy still when you're going through extreme suffering and hardships and setbacks to think, yeah, okay. But God sort of still got it in for me in some way. He doesn't like me. Like, you know, like my earthly father, sometimes, uh, you know, if, particularly if you've had a bad earth, you think that's how God is. I remember two vivid occasions when I had to grip my own two children very tightly and use my physical strength as their father to dominate them. Both occasions were in hospital. Both occasions they were about to have a general anaesthetic and were very scared. Jacob as they try to uncover his celiac and Annabelle with various scans and CT scans for her eye problem and her eye operation later. On both occasions I had to get them so tightly that they couldn't move and they were you know, panicking. Now imagine the scene from Jacob and Annabelle's perspective, their perspective, they are in a strange room with strange equipment around them, with strange people wearing strange clothes with masks over their face, trying to put masks on their face. And what is their father on earth doing? I'm making it worse. I'm holding them down, I won't let them get away. They're terrified and you know, these are when they're really young two and three year olds and they must, why is dad doing this to me? Why is dad not intervening? Why is dad holding me so tight? Why is dad allowing them to hurt me? But you and I know why, because I love them. I want their best and I want their health. It was short-term pain for a long-term gain. Though I appeared to them to be acting in a cruel manner, I was actually acting in a loving manner to ensure their future well-being. It was a very traumatic experience when Annabelle came back around from one of her anaesthetics because she had a psychotic episode. It can happen. And she started screaming and attacking everyone, nurses, myself, but particularly Leanne. She became incredibly strong and frantic. And so I had to grip her to stop her hurting other people and herself. And I had to grip her so tightly that in the end, the reason she gave up and I saw because of what she did with her, she gave up because she was hurting herself as as she was fighting against me as I was gripping hold of her. My grip in the end was hurting her as she fought me. What kind of father fights their daughter in this way? A father full of love. Why did I hold my children like that? knowing that it was causing them in that moment a lot of pain and hardship and anxiety because they are so precious to me. So verse 10 and 11 puts it like this. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Listen to this. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those that have been trained by it. God has a future goal in mind. He wants us to share in his holiness. He wants a harvest of righteousness and peace. He wants to bring us to glory, as it said in chapter two. But as any farmer knows, a harvest takes time and you have to cut back. You have to cut back earlier on in the year so that there can be harvesting and fruitfulness later on in the year. So God, in his wisdom and love, uses the trials and suffering of this life to discipline us, to train us, to mold us, to shape us. Now I used this lady as an example last week, uh, Johnny Erickson. And these are the two books. So she's written a number. These are the two ones that tell her story. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, she uh, was a se- brilliant athlete, a 17 year old. She had a diving accident, became a quadriplegic. So it, this is the unfair, unforgettable story of a young woman's struggle against quadriplegia and depression. And, uh, the books are just so powerful and, you know, make you cry and, um, uh, just very raw and honest, but theologically very robust. And she talks about how she did get depression, and she did get very angry at God and wrestle with God. But in the end, her faith was strengthened, and uh, and she's reaped a great harvest, as, as the passage said. Um, and uh, and 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 at the age of uh, so, so she she, she so at seventeen, she became a, uh, a quadriplegic. At the age of sixty-seven, for fifty years in a wheelchair, she. Um, so so that's what she looked like at the age of sixty-seven. Uh, I went to see her once and I remember her saying she couldn't lift her hands to praise the Lord above this because she she was paralyzed. And she writes in this article, uh, reflections on the 50th anniversary of my diving accident. And she writes this, I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. And at one point she says this, and you must find the article to read it for yourselves. She said, if I were to nail down suffering's main purpose, I would say it's the textbook that teaches me who I really am because I'm not the paragon of virtue I'd like to think I am. Suffering keeps knocking me off my pedestal of pride. And in in the article and in in those two books and in others, she reflects very deeply on a phrase that she was given or a bit of counsel she was given when she was this young Christian girl who has suffered a terrible hardship. And she wrote this. Back in the 70s, my Bible study friend, Steve Estes, shared 10 little words that set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. That's that's such a profound expression. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Steve explained it in this way. Johnny... God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. God hated the torture, injustice and treason that led to the crucifixion, yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you, as well as in others. Like Joseph, when he told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives as C.S. Lewis put it to a friend who lost his wife to illness, you know, but came back to God because of it, that he'd been dealt a severe mercy. There can be a severity to it, but it's a mercy. God is doing something greater. Or just recently, and I I highly recommend this book to you called God on Mute by Pete Gregg. And uh, I I just read it, and engaging the silence of unanswered prayer. And he wrestles with his wife's um, brain tumour, and the epilepsy that she then got. She's called Sammy, and the book, a lot of it, is about the struggles. He's starting this worldwide prayer movement. He's seeing unanswered prayer with his wife's physical health, and uh, a very moving and very again theologically profound book. And there's one point I just want to I just want to read you from it. It says this: "There is something solemn I must tell you, and this may well have been the hardest line to write in this entire book. I've come to believe." that if Sammy, that's his wife, had been spared her brain tumour and we'd never been forced to face the possibility of her early death, we would thereby have missed out on God's best for our lives. There, I've said it. I thought about it in great deal and I mean it. God's best has somehow been drawn from the worst pain we could ever have imagined. I continue to hate Sammy's illness, but I love Sammy more because of it. And then he says this. God has shown himself to be bigger than that fierce tumour. Bigger than a misfiring brain too. Bigger than nights of fear. Bigger than my inability to comprehend. Is he bigger than dying as well? Well, I know what I'm supposed to say here. But on that one, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. I like his humility. I tell those stories as two examples of the principle of Romans chapter 12, that God uses the sufferings and hardships of this life to do us good. C.S. Lewis famously described suffering as God's megaphone to get hold of a deaf world. And you could certainly say that during the COVID-19 pandemic that, we, p- p- pandemic that we're going through, that uh, pandemic, excuse me, that uh, that God's got our attention, hasn't he? Uh, Lewis, the idea that Lewis had, and he articulated it so well, is that when life is easy and when you're comfortable and happy and insulated, we can can drift from God. You know, we become proud and and self-reliant. We take credit for things when life's going well. We think we're the masters of our own fate and we come to think of ourselves as almost invincible. We don't need God. And then pain comes and suddenly we need God. I read a fascinating article uh, from the UK's Guardian newspaper uh, that was, you know, just in response to what's going on in the world. And I don't believe the person, uh, George Monbiot, is a uh, believer, but he said COVID-19 is nature's wake up call to complacent civilization. It's kind of C.S. Lewis type language. Let me read. It's just the opening paragraph. We've been living in a bubble, a bubble of false comfort and denial. In rich nations, we've begun to believe we've transcended the material world. The wealth we've accumulated, often at the expense of others, has shielded us from reality. Living behind screens, passing between capsules, our our houses, our cars, our offices, our shopping malls, we, we persuaded ourselves that contingency had retreated, that we had reached the point all civilizations seek, insulation from natural hazards. Now, the membrane has ruptured and we find ourselves naked and outraged. End of quotation. When suffering comes, we find ourselves naked and outraged. It's God's megaphone. We find out who we really are and we don't like it. But it's God's way of saying, I have a greater plan for your life. I want to reap a harvest of holiness. Tim Chester puts it like this, God disciplines us to refine our faith, wean us from idols, unsettle our self-reliance, display his power and direct us heavenwards. Above all, he disciplines us so we turn from futile sources of joy to find true joy in him. Think about how you reacted to some bad news or a setback or a disappointment or some hardship. There's normal negative emotions and then there's uncontrollable negative emotions. There's sort of normal reactions of emotion and then there's this uh, irreconcilable ones. Anger, disappointment, bitterness, hardness, desire for revenge, depression, a desire for control. And it's so deep-seated, these reactions, it's, it's disproportionate to what has happened. Why? Well, the setback, the disappointment, the hardship, whatever it was revealed that there was something in your life that you would put all your hope in and your security in and your significance in and you, you said if i have this i'll be happy my value you know if everything else as long as i have this I'm, I'm someone of value and yet that thing was taken away from you and the thought of losing it or the thought when you had lost it was too much for you suffering revealed that your counterfeit idols were counterfeit all counterfeit idols can do is demand your allegiance, take from you, and then destroy you. That's what they do, false gods. They cannot bless you, and they cannot save you. And anything can be an idol, a family, a wedding day, good causes, good plans for a holiday, work and career, money, sex, relationships, power, comfort, a good reputation, status, control, success. Achievement, friends, sport, music, pleasure, anything, learning, being religious, being moral. That can all be something that becomes an idol for us. Think about what COVID-19 has revealed in you. How many of you have found things that you put your hope in stripped away? And what were you left with? You see, suffering causes us to go, I need to reorder my desires reorder my expectations, reorder how tightly I hold things, reorder my loves, that God is now my first love, reorder my plans, reorder my priorities. It does something to us, doesn't it? God is speaking, disciplining us, refining us, stripping away everything else so that he can be left. He's giving us a welcome, a wake-up call. He's drawing us to himself. He wants us to find true joy only in him. He's getting us ready for glory and eternity. So how does God discipline? Through hardship. Why does God discipline? Because he loves us and he has a great end goal in mind for us, even though it's painful at the time. So then how should we respond? Well, there's three ways I want to mention to briefly finish here. The first way is we endure with a soft heart. Verse seven uh, talks about we have to endure the suffering, uh, hardship, as discipline. And this metaphor that runs through the whole thing is persevering in a race. You've got to keep going and it's hard There's endurance. And verse 11 says you, we can be trained by it. Like, you know, suffering becomes like the weights that we do in a gym that are really hard on our muscles, but the muscle, spiritual muscles grow as we bear under the weight of the suffering. So firstly, we're called to endure endure the suffering. In Romans 5, endurance produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. But if we're not careful, endurance alone, I'm going to get through this, can lead to a very hard heart and you end up worse off. You don't reap that harvest. So how do you endure without getting hard-hearted and just gritting your teeth? Would you remember what it says about Jesus? During the days of Jesus' earthly life on Earth, he offered up prayers, petitions, fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. How did Jesus endure the cross with prayers, petitions, cries and tears. In the Garden of Gethsemane, tears of anguish. at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, tears of agony and pain on the cross, impaled with nails through his hands and his legs, tears and cries of desperation. He wasn't detached. He wasn't numb. He kept praying. Jesus kept praying. He wrestled with God. He expressed his emotion. So if we are to endure without becoming hard-hearted, we must process with cries, prayers, petitions, and tears. We've got to keep talking to God. Read the book of Job, read the book of Lamentations, read the Psalms. They keep talking, those in suffering keep, and they're angry at God, they're wailing at God, they're shouting at God, but they're talking to God, they haven't turned from God, their heart hasn't become hard. You see, it'd be easy to go, okay, well, if, if God disciplines me through hardship, am I supposed to take delight in sufferings? No, take delight in his fatherly discipline, but not in the suffering itself. That's stoicism. And we're not to be Stoics. Just I'm going to get through this. You know, no, nothing's going to touch me. I'm, i I'm inv- No, 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 no. That's pride. That's stoicism. We, we are affected. It does take a lot out of us. We do cry. We do come away in anguish. It's not just about being strong. That leaves you numb, and emotionally disconnected. We weep. We suffer. We we have prayers and petitions of anger, and agony. So we endure, but with reality, with prayers praying to God endure with a soft heart secondly submit without losing heart verse 9 says how much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live I don't know about you but for me when suffering comes my typical response is when a hardship comes something I don't like comes my first response is how am I going to fix this how am I going to solve this that's always my default response. I want control. I want progress. I want to fix. I remember a few years ago. Some of you may remember. I had a bike accident and broke my teeth. I'm now back to my beautiful Hollywood smile that you admire me for. But uh, yeah, I broke my teeth. I ate concrete. You know, it's a horrible experience. And you know, it, it wasn't actually the thing about my teeth or anything. I was just frustrated that I couldn't get on and I had to keep going to the dentist. And I wanted to fix. I wanted to solve. I just wanted to be over. Uh, And yet God was teaching me deep lessons around trusting him, giving up control, doing things in his strength and not my strength, not rushing, but being patient. I couldn't fix it quickly. Hebrews 12 does not say fix your circumstances. When hardship comes, fix them. It says when hardship comes, submit to your father. He's ordering your circumstances for your good. Because if you don't submit in I mean, I'm not talking about we can't bring change in the world and we can't bring change to our circumstances, of course, but sometimes we can't. And if you don't then learn, like, you know, Johnny Erickson in a wheelchair, I mean, she can't. If you don't learn to submit to your father's wisdom and love, there will be an irreconcilable anger in you that will eat away and make you bitter and hardened. You'll become distant. And if you keep trying to take control in circumstances that are outside of your control, you'll be exhausted. You'll be stressed. You'll be anxious. You won't be able to sleep because you won't have submitted. But if you submit, if you give up control, if you trust that God is in control and he's running the world better than you run the world and he knows what he's doing, you will find a harvest of righteousness and peace. He's training you for glory. You'll find holiness in your life. But submission is not just, okay, I'll give up. You know, like I'm just, submit without losing hope. So verse five says, don't lose heart. It's easy in suffering, isn't it, to lose hope? Am I supposed to just submitting and go, okay, then? No, without losing heart. There's a word of encouragement here. God is at work. Don't lose heart. There's better things in store. What you thought was your best, that plan, that, that, that perfect day, that, that holiday, that job, that career, that thing, whatever it is, that sporting thing, that, whatever's crashed, you thought that was your best. No, God knows your best, and he has something better, better than that. So don't lose heart, but submit to God, give in, surrender your agenda, give up your plans, allow him to reveal your idols and expose your pride and live, live out of that death. You'll experience a wonderful resurrection. That's the way of the kingdom. Remain hopeful. He has something better for you than what you had planned. Endure with a soft heart, submit without losing hope. And then finally to finish, be strong as others. Carry you or with the help of others. Verse 12 and 13 of our passage talk about strengthening our feeble arms and weak knees. In other words, we hear the word of encouragement, and what do we do? We're strong in the suffering. But who's he addressing? Who's he addressing? Hebrews chapter 12, who's it written to? It's not written to one individual, it's written to a congregation of Christians, a community of believers. He's urging them together. He's not saying you personally run the race, he is, but he's saying you together run the race previously in chapter 10 he said we mustn't stop meeting together like you've got to keep meeting together you need to stay in it together you must suffer together endure together submit together remain tender-hearted together hear from god's spirit together learn together cry together pray together this is something the whole community go and you know we weep with those that weep and we rejoice with those that rejoice even if we're not all going through the same thing we do it together a great example in our own church in the last two weeks are Andrew and Ola from our leadership team. And they've had a lot of challenges and praise God that Theo has been born well. They've had great strength. Great strength. They've held on to the promises of God. I've been speaking to Andrew. But they've been carried through prayers and community. And it's been wonderful. It might make me cry now. But the point is they've allowed others to carry them. They've allowed others, they've shared, they've been vulnerable and real. They've let others in. Don't be too proud to not let others in when you're suffering. I can do it myself, it shows I'm weak. I, I, can't, I, can't, you know, I can't lose face, lose face, give up your pride. Be strong, but let others in, let others help you. We cannot run the race of chapter 12 alone. We need to be reminded of the great cloud of witnesses in chapter 11, the presence of brothers and sisters alongside us, and the Lord who goes before us, who endured the cross, who is now at the right hand of the Father, and he's, and he's, and he's bringing us to glory. Let me finish with this. There's a famous expression that says, the same son that milks the wax hardens the clay. When suffering comes, a global pandemic, grips us all. Well, the same sun, the same suffering, the same hardship that hardens some will soften others. You'll either move towards God in this time or you'll move away from God at this time. You'll either become more beautiful as a person or more bitter as a person. You'll either grow and, 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 and make the most of this time and learn new habits and devotions and rhythms or you'll waste this time and you'll wither during this time and you'll give to sin and, and you'll just indulge and you'll be worse off. No one remains neutral during COVID-19 in their hearts. It's forming everyone, the same sun, the same hardship. And the question of whether you will be formed to be a beautiful person, a better person, a stronger person, a more glorious person, is whether you hear Hebrews chapter 12. There's a word of encouragement. God is disciplining us through this hardship. Why does he do that? Because we're his children and he loves us. And in his wisdom, eternal wisdom and love, knowledge and, and vision, he has an end goal in us much, much better than what we ever thought for ourselves. And that can only be achieved through hardship. He's preparing us for glory. That's the way of the kingdom. Death leads to resurrection. So how should we respond? Endure with a soft heart. Keep praying to him. Submit without losing hope. Give up your for control. Give in to him and be strong. Let others carry you. Don't be too proud to admit you need help. Let's have a moment's pause. I'm going to then pray and we're going to sing. Take a moment, if you're comfortable, you can close your eyes just where you are to think of those three things of how we should respond. Think of what most speaks to you. There was a verse that I was going to quote, I forgot to in my talk from Revelation chapter 319, where Jesus says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Let's hear God's rebuke as a loving father. We're going to sing a song called Oceans. It talks about surrender and submission and giving, giving yourself to God fully as he takes you to places you didn't even think you necessarily wanted to go or possible, but he's guiding And it's a better place for you. And it's a place of greater freedom and joy, but it might be hard along the way. So let's respond in song.